Welcome back to our seventh reading podcast for the K. I'm sure you have been anxiously waiting to hear what happens to Stu Cat. I will start where I left off. I thought about getting back on the raft and letting it drift to sea again. I was certain that there were enough boards still on top to sit and sleep on. If I could get the water keg down the hill and the last piece of chocolate out of the box, I'd be all right for a few days. I got up and went down to the water, feeling my way toward the reef. I knew that if I kept going that way, I'd touch or fall over the length of lifeline rope that tethered the raft. Timothy had driven a heavy piece of driftwood into the sand so that the raft would not go out to sea with the tide. He was smart that way. I walked slowly and carefully, expecting at any moment to feel the rope with my cane or have it hit against my ankles. I went all the way to the beginning of the reef without finding it. Then I reversed my course and walked in the other direction. Finally, I stumbled over the heavy piece of wood that Timothy had driven into the sand. I felt around it, but the rope was no longer tied to it. He'd cut the raft loose. Panic swept over me, but taking my bearing from the stake, I decided to go out into the water, hoping to find the raft. A few feet offshore, I got another bad scare. I put my foot down and something moved. In fact, the whole bottom seemed to move. I lost my balance and fell headfirst into the water. I came up sputtering and realized I'd stepped on a skate, a diamond-shaped fish with a stinger tail. I'd done that once or twice at West Punt. The skate is kin to the deadly sea ray, but this one was as shocked as I was and swam off to deep water. I went out to my waist, feeling with my hands in all directions, but the raft was gone. I trusted Timothy and kept telling myself that he wouldn't harm me, but it was the whole mysterious Jumbi thing that was frightening, and he certainly wasn't acting like the Timothy I'd been living with. In mid-afternoon, he returned to the hut. Neither of us spoke. Then I heard him pounding something. The palm fronds on the hut rattled. Whatever it was, he was pounding it into the hut. Having finished, he went away again. When I heard him moving through the sea grape down the path, I got up and began feeling around the framing of the hut. There was nothing on the sides of it, and I decided that whatever he'd attached had to be on the roof. I knew there were several lengths of log over near the campfire, so I approached it, found one of the logs, and rolled it over to the entrance to the hut. I stood on it and felt along the cross beam that held the roof up. In the very center, I found what I was looking for. I cried out when the palm of my hand touched something sharp. Then with my fingers, I slowly felt around the object. It had a head. I discovered four feet and a tail. (gasps) Timothy had spent all that time carving a cat out of wood, a stew cat. The nails in it were supposed to kill the evil Jumbi, which meant the evil spirit. I felt weak and sat down on the log. Soon he came up the path, dropping Stewcat into my lap. Where was he? I asked. On the raft, of course, 
Timothy answered. I got him off to Ireland till I could chase to Chumbi. Where is the raft, Timothy? Twas off to shore, Philippe. Tis back now, and our luck is going to change. But it didn't change. It got worse. Chapter 12 One morning in the middle of May, I awakened to hear Timothy taking great breaths. It sounded as though he were fighting for air. I listened a moment and then asked, Are you all right, Timothy? He wheezed back. Fever. Malaria. I had to think a moment to understand what he was talking about. Fever. Malaria. I reached over to touch him. His forehead was burning hot. His breath coming in big, harsh sighs. He said, I got malaria again, Philippe. Twill go away, but fetch some water for me. When I had had fever in Virginia and at Scarlaloo, my mother had given me aspirin and put cold cloths on my head. But we had no aspirin on the quay, of course, and the water was always warm. I poured some water from the keg and gave it to him. He gulped it and then fell back on the mat. For a while, I listened to his heavy breathing and then ripped a piece of cloth from what was left of my shirt, dampened it with water and placed it on his forehead. He murmured, that be good. But suddenly he began to shiver. Even though the morning air was already warm, I could hear his teeth clacking. I had nothing to cover him with, so I just sat beside him, holding the cloth, which was already beginning to dry to his forehead. His breath was like air from a furnace. It must have been about 10 o'clock when Timothy began to mumble and laugh. It sounded almost as if he were talking in his sleep. But the laughter, little bursts of it between the wheezes, was very high and strange. I couldn't keep the cloth on his head because he was tossing from side to side. I talked to him constantly, but he didn't even know that I was there. Once he got up and fell back down to the mat, and I told him to stay very still. For a long time he did, because he began to shiver again. When that ended, the mumbling and high laughter started all over. At about noontime, the mumbling got worse, and I could feel him trying to get to his feet. I clung to his arm, shouting for him to lie down again, but he threw me aside as if I weren't there. I could hear him crashing down the hill toward the sea, the frightening laughter echoing back. I followed the trail of laughter, and then I heard splashing and knew he'd gone into the water. I yelled, Timothy, Timothy, come back. And suddenly it became dead quiet. I screamed his name again and again, and there was no answer. I reached the beach and waded out to my knees and began to move slowly, trying to keep on a line with the beach. I had gone about 30 steps when I fell over Timothy's body, plunging down in the water. Holding on to him with one hand, I got on my feet again. The upper part of his body was floating, but I knew his feet were dragging. I put my face against his mouth. He was still breathing. I worked myself around to put both hands under his shoulders, but he was so heavy that way. And then I clasped my hands under his chin and began to pull him out. 
He made strange sounds, but did not try to help me. It took me what seemed like a long time to get Timothy out of the water and back up to the damp sand. He must have weighed 220 or 30 pounds, and I could only move him two or three inches at a time. I sat beside him for almost an hour in the hot sun while he rested quietly, his breathing not so harsh now. And then I realized he was shivering again. I knew I could not drag him up the slope to the shelter of the hut, so I tore off branches of sea grape and put them over his body to block out the sun. I brought water down from the hut, raised his head, and ordered him to drink it. With one hand, I found his lips and then guided the cup to his chin. He seemed to understand and gulped it down. I stayed by him the rest of that long afternoon while he slept. When he awakened, it was early evening and it had turned cool again. He was breathing easily now, and I knew that the fever had broken because his forehead was no longer hot. And that's where I'll stop for today.